Welcome to After You, a monthly podcast discussing, extolling, deviating from, and disagreeing about recent poems. The format's pretty simple. Each month, two of us pick out a poem and all four of us talk, hoping in the process to learn something about the way poems can matter, about what is found there and what, sometimes, for some of us, is not. At the end, we'll tell you about things that have caught our attention recently, and then one of us will call another poet for a short interview. I'm Jonathan Farmer, your host for this month, recording in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, where I'm sitting next to Gabrielle Calva-Caressi and Kava Akbar. Kava has stopped off in Gabby and I's neck of the suburbs on his way, out of his way, really, to an artist retreat in western North Carolina. Francine J. Harris is here in voice and spirit, though the rest of her has stayed behind in St. Louis. Francine, how are you? I'm really good. How are you? It's I'm... so good to be with you guys. Yeah. In voice and spirit. <laughs> I'm, I'm 60% nervous and 40% excited, which is a pretty good mix for me. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm right around 70-30, maybe, maybe trending towards 60-40. I'm going to say I'm solidly 80-20. <laughs> I have no percentages. <laughs> it's all gray area, nervous excitement. It's just a swirl of letters. Yes, definitely. This month and every month, we'll post links to the poems we're discussing on our website. If you want to play along at home, you can find those links at afteryoupodcast.org. Kava, can you get us started? Yeah, absolutely. So the poem that I brought this month uh, is by the poet Somaz Sharif. Um, it was in the January-February issue of the Kenyan Review. Uh, Solmez is an incredible poet, um, a recent Ruth Lilly Fellow. Uh, she teaches in San Francisco, and just her new book, Look, I know is a favorite of all of ours. Uh, we're all really excited about it, and we're really excited about this poem for a lot of reasons that we're going to get into. Um, but uh, I'll start out by reading it. Again, it's called Desired Appreciation. Until now, now that I've reached my 30s, all my muse's poetry has been harmless, American and diplomatic. A learned helplessness is what psychologists call it, my docile, desired state. I've been largely well-behaved and gracious, I've learned the doctors learned of learned helplessness by shocking dogs. Eventually, we things give up. Am I grateful to be here? Someone eventually asks if I love this country. In between the helplessness, the agents, the nation must administer a bit of hope, must meet basic dietary needs, ensure by tube, by nose, by throat, by other orifice. Must fist bump a janitor. Must muss up some kid's hair and let him loose around the oval office. Click, click could be the cameras or the teeth of handcuffs closing to fix the arms overhead. There must be a doctor on hand to ensure the shoulders do not dislocate. And there must be Prince's Raspberry Beret. Click, click, could be Morse code tapped out against a coffin wall to the neighboring coffin. Outside my window, the snow lights cobalt 
for a bit at dusk, and I'm surprised every second of it. I had never seen the country like this. Somehow, I can't say yes. This is a beautiful country. I have not cast my eyes over it before. That is, in this direction, is how John Brown put it when he was put on the scaffold. I feel like I must muzzle myself, I told my psychologist. So you feel dangerous, she said. Yes. So you feel like a threat? Yes. Why was I so surprised to hear it? Mm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a lot. There's a lot of. Th- there's a lot of really, really incredible things that Solmez is doing in this poem. Um, I think that uh, it begins with this way of assert. This way of questioning her own sort of body of poetics. Um, this initial inser- assertion. Um, until now, now that I've reached my 30s, all my muse's poetry has been harmless. And, and it immediately starts off with this um, conflation between harmlessness and then American and diplomatic, uh, as if to be American and diplomatic is to be harmless, as if to be American and diplomatic is to um, accept a learned helplessness. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was wondering uh, if maybe we could start the conversation there talking about Um, the conflation between those things, uh, the conflation between harmlessness and what it is to um, try to reject a harmless poetry and how this poem is starting to do that. Yeah, and I'll I'll throw in one other um, term that I think is sort of um, playing in there as well, which is well-behaved. And Mm -hmm. one of the things I I find myself kind of trying to suss out is to, to... the degree to which this is still or, or is not a well-behaved poem. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there, there, there's a lot um, that this poem, I think, very consciously doesn't do. Um, and, and I think that's part of um, part of that question as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I agree. And, and sort of this idea of what we mean by um, an accessible poem, right? Mm-hmm. Or a, I mean, one of the things I'm interested in is how... You know, that moment where we take the turn really toward the body and toward the force Mm -hmm. beating, it takes a a beautifully long time to get there. And one (laughs) of the things I love about uh, Soma's Sharif's poems is, and I think this does get to what we're talking about, the absolute patience with which these poems move. Um, And so there is a kind of ease in the beginning that one could think of as well-behaved or measured or that leads us to this physical reality that is, no matter how plain spoken yeah. or conversational in its tone, uh, is is relentless, and you and you cannot get away from it. Or if you get away from it, you're you're making a real decision about your place right. in the poem and in the world. Right. I think part of the the thing that I was interested in um, in the beginning to that end is the word learned mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and how she uses it like there's a repetition of that word four times actually um but it's interesting because the 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 clinical turn the learned helplessness that way that we sort of stop responding to our trauma um and then it's repeated i've learned the doctors learned of learned helplessness so it becomes this this way that she's kind of talking about how we get the it's like how we have to trust the news that we're given through the people we trust to provide us with science 
to, to talk about our bodies, which I thought was really beautiful. And, and the way that learned is, is able to move in both directions, that, that the way that she's come to resist that is, is, is by learning as well. Uh, and your phrase have to, you know, the, the, the other word that, that just keeps repeating in this poem is must. Um, mm-hmm. And it's another word that's slippery in here, the, um, the different kinds of musts uh, that, the, that the government has. It's, it's sort of uh, potentially real obligations, uh, you know, that one where meet basic dietary needs, which at first mm-hmm. you can almost read as, you know, ensure that its citizens are provided for, mm-hmm. that nobody's mm-hmm. starving, and then it turns out to be uh, meet these basic dietary needs of these people that, that it's imprisoned and, and, and is torturing mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. A, as a sort of way of making the, the torture quasi-legal. Right. Uh, mm-hmm. and, then, and, and then I think the must comes back uh, later on. I must muzzle myself. And, mm-hmm. uh, and so it kind of seeps back mm-hmm. into, mm-hmm. into her own actions as well. Yeah, uh, there's, a, there's a way that the word learned almost becomes like a cudgel. You know, mm-hmm. like 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 uh, I've learned the doctors learned of learned helplessness. It's like you're tired of hearing that word. You know, it, it, it there's a fatigue built into mm-hmm. the repetition of it. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I want to talk too about the uh, um, towards the sort of crescendo of the poem. Um, it turn it brings in this voice of John Brown, the abolitionist who killed um, five slavery supporters and was tried for treason and inciting inciting a slave riot. Um, Walt Whitman writes about seeing this execution, you know, mm-hmm. but this is like a this is like one of the events that sparks the Civil War. So um, there's a way in which the speaker of this poem is sort of, uh, you know, drawing a comparison between herself and, you know, this famous mm-hmm. uh, person who was put to death for treason. Um, mm-hmm. uh, and that that invocation feels particularly powerful. That is, this is a beautiful country. I have not cast my eyes over it before. That is in this direction is the words that she gives mm-hmm. us from him. Well, and I'm interested in in all of the conflations of stuff because there's mm-hmm. that, but then there's also this. To me, one of the most interesting terms at the beginning is we're talking about diplomatic, a learned helplessness, is what psychologists call it. But then it's my docile desire. It's, mm-hmm. I mean, it's there's a lot of moments in which. Uh, she, the 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 author, the speaker. I know there are questions about these things, but where uh, Sharif is making a kind of decision to put the self and the my in all sorts of spaces right. of, of union. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we shared um, when we were getting ready to record this. We shared a review that she's written of Philip Meter's. Uh, I'm not even sure I'm pronouncing that right. Um, most recent book where she uh, she kind of criticizes. Uh, his take it, in many places for not foregrounding the eye, for not foregrounding the speaker, um, which is, I have to admit, very different from, from the way I, I felt about it. I, I, I really valued Meter's willingness to attend to those voices rather mm-hmm. than to um, uh, stand in front of them. Mm-hmm. I wonder if some of that comes from, I, I believe, if I, under, if I know her biography well at all, I think she did an, a bunch of work with June Jordan's yeah. uh, Poetry for the People. And yeah. so I think that there's, uh, Sharif falls within all kinds of interesting spaces in American poetry. And mm-hmm. I think that probably plays a part in that. Yeah, well, and there's there's a way in which um, this poem, the speaker is kind of unsure herself. Um, you know, in the, in the final moment, the poem leaves us with a surprise at her own belief, you know, in a moment of the speaker being surprised to hear us, uh, the, the affirmation come out of her mouth. Mm-hmm. One of the lines that um, 
was most odd to me, I think, well, there's, there's a couple of them, but one of them was, um, and there must be Prince's Raspberry Beret. And I kept wondering why Raspberry Beret was in there. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if that's why it's in there for for the speaker here or for Sermaz or however we want to think about this poem. But um, that song is really interesting for me because it's you know, it's like a, a late, you know, the 1980s when uh, pop music was... Um, God, I can't finish that thought. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to finish that thought. What I what I want I think what I want to say about that that song in particular is that um there's there's a weird that that the subject of that song is virtually naked. Like when mm-hmm. when Prince talks about this girl, he's talking about, you know, it's I forget what the line is, but If uh, it was warm, she wouldn't wear much she, more. If yeah, if it was warm, she wouldn't wear much more. So like there's a there's a weird it's one of his songs that weirdly renders her like who his love interest as being kind of naked and not very bright and <laughs> it just I don't know I've always that song has always bugged me because as as for as like happy as it is it's talking about somebody that's kind of just there to be used mm-hmm. um, uh, and to me it kind of comes back a little bit at least to the helplessness or the harmlessness um, although I'm not necessarily sure that I can make like the perfect connection to it but it's just such a very specific moment well, the the other element that's that's there, and and that for me is that you know music itself has been used as a torture device, mm-hmm. right? You mm-hmm. keep people up all mm-hmm. night by playing yeah. these songs over and over mm-hmm. and over again, um, and, and it's you know th- this poem seems to be very uh, for for most of it very ill at ease with beauty. It's, it 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 resists, with some notable exceptions, much figuration. It it doesn't. It doesn't allow itself to get lyrical for any period of time, except it, it does start out in, in a kind of more lyrical, almost blank verse. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so that that must, you know, it's it's both again another one of these slippery must. There must be songs like this because we music is valuable and, and pleasure is valuable, but there also must because uh, it's going to be exploited. It's it's must in that in that in that governmental. Uh, must that, that, that is, is going to maintain this system it's going to it's going to exploit all these things um, and, and so the sort of uh, imperfect asceticism of, of the poem uh, is very much not like Raspberry Beret uh, mm-hmm. and, and kind of willfully so mm-hmm. and it's threat I mean it's threatening too it's the it's the turning of language and the turning of a of of something aural a u r a l into a weapon, you know, it's weaponizing this sort of innocuous, sort of vapid or, or you know infantilizing song. Um, it's it's weaponizing the song just as you know Solmaz is sort of using some of these some of the language, the musts and the learns as cudgels or in, as instruments of bludgeoning. One thing that another thing that really interested me, and this is another sort of turn, and hopefully we'll all make the leap. Um, uh, we can all, you'll all forgive my leaping. Um, <laughs> uh, there, there are two questions that the speaker at the poem sort of begins and ends with these questions, um, uh, that the speaker asks herself and she can't really answer either, either of them. She says, am I grateful to be here? 
um, and she can't answer that. Um, she meditates on it for uh, a large chunk of the poem, but she can't answer it. And then the why was I so surprised to hear it? The questions that she can answer are the ones that the psycho the mm -hmm. psychologist are answering. The psychologist is asking her rather. Um, and I, I think that's an interesting way to frame a poem to um, these questions that the speaker is sort of asking herself and unable to mm -hmm. really respond to. I have to admit, those, those, those both felt a little bit, especially the second one, like uh, somewhat rhetorical questions mm -hmm. to me. I mean, I, I do feel like the poem has given us everything we need to answer that last question. I mean, that, that, that to me is how it gets back to, to the beginning. Um, you mean um, rhetorical you as in like maybe it shouldn't be there? Or no, no, I, I, I'm I'm all in favor of rhetoric. Um, <laughs> in 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 the, in the sense that Kava had kind of talked about it as, as a question that she can't answer, and and to me it feels more like uh, a, a way of well, you, communicating. You, you know, the, the interesting thing mm -hmm. about that is that if it weren't there, because I I think I don't know. You know, sometimes when you're when you're talking with students in workshop about last lines, that to me seems like one of these last lines that. Um, in a workshop setting, I feel like people would at least fight about a little bit. Um, but mm -hmm. it's interesting because if it's not there, then the poem ends on, so you feel like a threat? Yes. Right? And then it becomes a mm -hmm. whole... I mean, it, it, that is kind of what the poem is saying, but it's there's still that self-consciousness, right, about, like, ending right. on that mm -hmm. thought. Like, no, I, I still I need to qualify that somehow. And that's that. That interests me too, because the poem does have all of these movements of kind of going towards a statement and then finding mm -hmm. a way of qualifying it, finding a way of pulling it back. You know, there's there's that moment early on that is what we get this long statement, and then is what, which kind of suggests that it's just something that was said. And, and with the brown line, which be, which has mm -hmm. this kind of lyricism that so little in the poem mm -hmm. does, is right. how John Brown put it. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and so it, it again gets pulled pulled down in some way the 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 the, the uh, anything that becomes too lyrical uh or or too powerful in a sense because this poem seems for very good reasons mm -hmm. anxious about power uh gets pulled back to earth well and i think that i think that i mean at the at the beating heart of this poem or the sort of the sort of muscle rippling under the skin is this sort of anxiety about being you know, what is it to be a person in America whose name mm -hmm. is Sulmet Sharif mm -hmm. who, who doesn't agree with the policy in such a strong way? And, like, do I feel like a threat? Well, I mean, like, you know, it's a very it's a very uneasy thing to walk and, like, disavow everything about, um, right. you know, certain politics. But then also, you know, you, you, there, are, there are people who will assume that no matter how, you know, inert you are politically, if your name is Sulmet Sharif, then... But it's also interesting you know I mean? that that... Like those two questions, and I and the other one that you raised earlier, that am I grateful to be here? I mean, those questions mm -hmm. and the idea of, of asking um, or even rhetorically posing to someone whether or not they are a threat. I mean, those are those are 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 targeted questions, and it's interesting that <laughs> that it's not a question that we ask. You know, well, at least. Um, except under uh what's the word i want except under coded circumstances that you ask american citizens are you grateful to be here and why that question would not be posed to us um and and whether or not we would ever ask a natural born american white male if they feel like a threat <laughs> do you know what i mean like it's, it's mm -hmm. really right. yeah i mean right. there are questions that that anybody could 
ask of themselves about gratefulness and about whether or not they're dangerous. Mm -hmm. But um, of course, they only get posed in certain certain ways to certain people. Yeah. So I, I think questions about gratefulness gives us a, a great opportunity to transition because we, we, we need to move on mm -hmm. just for the sake of time. So uh, I'm going to hand this over to uh, to Gabby now. Oh, well, the, the poem I chose for this uh, this podcast is um, Erica Sanchez's poem, Six Months After Contemplating Suicide. I'll, I'll read it. Six Months After Contemplating Suicide. Admit it. You wanted the end with a serpentine greed. How to negotiate that strangling mist, the fibrous whisper. To cease to exist and to die are two different things entirely. But you knew this, didn't you? Some days you knelt on coins in those yellow hours. You lit a flame to your shadow and ate scorpions with your naked fingers. So touched by the sadness of hair in a dirty sink, the malevolent smell of soap. When instead of swallowing a fistful of white pills, you decided to shower, the palm trees nodded in agreement. A choir of crickets singing behind your swollen eyes. The masked bird turned to you with a shred of paper hanging from its beak. At dusk, hair wet and fragrant, you cupped a goat's face and kissed his trembling horns. The ghost, it fell prostrate, passed through you like a swift and generous storm. Um, you know, I, I think about why I chose this poem and I could give all kinds of craft reasons and oh gosh, it's it's such a great poem, which I, I think it's a very beautiful poem, mm -hmm. whatever beauty means. Um, <laughs> but you know, um, and we can talk about that in the context of this poem. But when I was thinking about it this week, it, it really is this week was the 18th anniversary of my mother committing suicide. And so I think a lot about this poem in particular, but like this poem as almost the genre, mm -hmm. right? Like the the horrible, beautiful genre of writing about uh, either completed suicide or the suicidal impulse mm -hmm. or, um, you know, poems that could so easily, and I think in my hands, have quickly become the worst poems in America. <laughs> you know, and that, that then um, how do you... How do you manage a subject mm -hmm. like this, and how do you um, how do you keep talking about this and and being true to yourself and and su being surprising in a poem? And one of the things that I really appreciate about this poem is is how often I am surprised within mm -hmm. this poem. Um, and the generosity of this poem that is not a kind of generosity that is sentimental, because I think there are certain kinds of generosity we find in poems about suicide, about certain kinds of suffering that have to do with um, a sort of generosity or compassion that can almost begin to feel mm -hmm. melodramatic mm -hmm. or, or not real in some way. And so I am both... I am a great fan of both the death urge mm -hmm. in this poem and also the very slow paced and then sort of mythical way we come out of that. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm a big mm -hmm. I'm a big fan of this poem. And I and I think part of that generosity is that the poem is willing 
throughout to to reach for beauty. And it's it's yeah. interesting. One of the comparisons that really struck me between this and the Sharif is uh, going from a poem that that so often resists beauty mm-hmm. uh, because of its complicity in. Um, in such horrible things, uh, to a poem that really uh, reaches for beauty, uh, which can be risky. You know, you, mm-hmm. th- that that kind of association of, of beauty with suicide mm-hmm. can romanticize it, and, and I but think doesn't. That, I think, I think here. that time mm-hmm. d- takes away some of that um, romanticism, like as opposed to. Yeah. I mean, I think it's interesting that word serpentine, um, because I sp- I think it speaks yeah. to <laughs> our our tempting our t- uh, what's our our temptation. To, to find, to romanticize the act, right? Um, but even the title, The Six Months After Contemplating Suicide, it's sweet and sorrow, sweet and sorrowful, sour, I don't know what the word is. I wanted to be there for the speaker six months ago, but then there's another way in which it does, there's a, a the way that we need distance from something in order to not romanticize it. I think, I think that the beginning kind of calls to mind. You pointed out that word serpentine, and I, I, I can't help but think of you know the Garden of Eden and you know the mm-hmm. the whisper of the serpent. You know the 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 sort of um, equation of you know this mm-hmm. handful of pills or a fistful of white pills, mm-hmm. um, and then instead of swallowing them, you know the palm trees nodded in agreement, like good decision. You can right. stay, <laughs> you can you can stay in Eden a while longer. Which I, I love that yeah. moment. I love the I love the yeah mm-hmm. I love them just being like yeah. 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 Well, and what I one of the things I love, and I think this is a way in which this poem and the Sharif are are so many ways for me in ways that are Mm -hmm. are important to me is that like while there may be a kind of prioritization of information that all poets work into and think about in their poems, there is no hierarchy that contains Mm -hmm. judgment within it, Mm -hmm. right? So, and both of those poems are, I think, are similar in terms of. The tone of admit it, you wanted the end with a serpentine greed is said in such a measured way that um, while that may be true, there's no kind of judgment attached to it, which also, and I think this happens throughout the poem, while things build, it could have gone either way and there's not a judgment one way or another. And I think that that's very important. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's interesting, and that is something that's interesting to me about toward the end of the of Solomon Sharif's poem as well. Hmm. Um, so, sticking for a minute with that opening, uh, one of the things that I, I keep going back to with this poem is is the, the it being addressed to a you that is mm-hmm. the self, mm-hmm. um, and um, this in many ways remains a private poem, yeah. um, and uh, a, a private private poem in the sense that there, there are things in here that I don't feel completely mm-hmm. capable of decoding. The, mm-hmm. the, the, the mm-hmm. mass bird remains Definitely. mysterious mm-hmm. to me. That question, the ghost, seems part yeah. of an ongoing conversation that I haven't been hearing up until now. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, forgive me for sort of pontificating here. Uh, Julia Kristeva has a book called Black Sun, and she talks about uh, the, the sort of challenge of writing about depression. Mm-hmm in part because um, depression resists faith in yeah. symbols and mm-hmm. signifiers. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And, and and so I think one of the things that's sort of curious and intriguing and even appealing to me about this poem is, is the way without seeming to be willfully elusive, it, right. it, it retains um, some of the some of the sort of Privacy uh, of, of that of that earlier state. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of the some of the ways in which it, it can only be 
uh, sort of communicated by being imperfectly and insufficiently encoded. Yeah, yeah. Like you think of a really a really intimate sort of um, piano or singer uh, s- singer singing accompanied by a piano, where you can like sort of hear the feet on the piano mm-hmm. pedals, mm-hmm. and like it's just like almost so intimate, mm-hmm. you feel like intruding, like you're <laughs> intruding rather. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are moments of this that feel like the, you know the the image of her um, just sort of. Uh, uh, eating the scorpions with your naked fingers it just seems like such a it's mm-hmm. such a strange and striking image but it also mm-hmm. feels so profoundly mm-hmm. intimate to me right. um like just the the gentle pinch of the fingers on the scorpion um and eating eating that seems like such a strange and jarring and private yep. activity yeah and the line breaks to me are like that and the stanza breaks i mean even just like the delay she creates between to cease to exist and to die and that break are two different mm. things entirely. Mm-hmm. Like, there's a moment of understanding in that that feels mm-hmm. incredibly intimate. At me. the same time, there's still... I don't know, I keep, I was thinking of a thing you said about um, uh, it being not judgmental, Gabby. I, I, and mm-hmm. I, I, I yeah. hear that at the same time, there's something about the need to, like, flatten out all of the emotion of talking about this, yeah. that it's it's not judgment. Um, but it is, uh, that kind of like, whatever, whatever the, the emotional, um, constitution of self-flagellation is about (laughs) is, is in there. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like in some days you knelt on coins in those yellow hours seems, I don't know if she grew up Mm -hmm. Catholic, but (laughs) it's such a Catholic moment, you know, of like, um, having to and then and then the boundary between that and self-destruction you know um there's a kind Mm -hmm. of it's if 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 there's um there's something inherently um judgmental about needing to remove all of your judgment on something if that makes sense do you know what i mean right Mm -hmm. sorry (laughs) spiraling but (laughs) no i like that no that's great and that gets to i think the yeah totally of the poem we've Mm -hmm. talked that's sort of I feel like this is this speaker who is, whether or not the speaker has, has seen yeah. everything. Mm-hmm. And sort of, what would it be to the person, to be the person the speaker is looking at, even if it's the self, and say, like, mm-hmm. I see all of these totally. things. Do you know? I mm-hmm. mean, that that's a pretty remarkable thing. Yeah, I think the whole, the language of the poem um, is coming from a place of heightened emotional arousal, just broadly on both ends mm-hmm. of the spectrum, you know? So, um a, a moment like so touched by the sadness of hair in a dirty sink, you know, like like the very common experience of finding a hair in the in the sink, you know, in in a state of such heightened emotional arousal can become uh, mm-hmm. laden with this profundity, you know. But at the but at the same time, it's that that experience becomes so stripped down when she when she becomes most literal in the poem mm-hmm. uh, when she moves away from the figure of language. Uh, she the oftentimes she moves completely into fragments there are no right. there, there are no uh, uh, there, there are no complete sentences there for a bit as she shifts mm-hmm. back into mm-hmm. the literal mm-hmm. uh, and so there is this sort of effort to or, or whether it's well maybe it's not an effort there, there is this kind of uh, flattening of, of, of that this um, kind of putting it into uh, a, a, either a safer or um, a, a, a more numbed yeah. uh, state yeah. mm-hmm. I'm a little hesitant to say this, but I'll, I guess I'll say it as a reader, this is what appeals to me and not put it in some kind of formula. Um, but, you know, we've talked about like thinking about why these poems appeal to us. And there's something very appealing to me about 
when instead of swallowing the fistful of white pills, you decided to shower. And I and thinking about yeah. the moments, mm-hmm. you know, for me, like when I've been just really like, if not on the verge of feeling this way, then at least like really down and really depressed and not feeling like I was able to, mm-hmm. to pull myself out of it. Just the act, like just deciding to act, to do something like the deciding to shower, mm-hmm. it seems so um, every day, like just an everyday decision that you can make about, <laughs> you know, whatever your circumstances. Mm-hmm. Um, and also there's an agency to it, um, which I think is, you know, partly why. And, you know, we're just putting these poems next to each other, but I, but in thinking about it next to the Sharif, thinking about um, our own agency and um, kind of it rings to me in that line. Well, I also love that, like, in a poem that is about an act that is perhaps not an act that one would consider in a moment of great uh, Mm -hmm. mental health, although we can have questions about that. One of the things I love is that the the poem becomes, um, in the moment of that decision, uh, the poem becomes positively hallucinogenic. I mean, it becomes, Hmm. it really Mm -hmm. becomes amplified in Mm -hmm. this way that all of a sudden there's a kind of world of apocalyptic experience Mm -hmm. that begins to happen that I'm really interested in. Like, if I start thinking about what that sounds like and looks like, you know, for a long time I was focused on those crickets, a choir of crickets singing, but then I see, like, the choir of crickets is singing behind your swollen eyes. So really it's like the head is buzzing, like everything Mm -hmm. starts to wake up, and that's interesting Mm -hmm. to me what happens. And I I relate to that, I think one of the things this poem gets right is that uh, our our rhetoric of depression is is the depression is is equal to nothingness, and depression is not nothingness. Uh, Mm -hmm. Depression is a a presence, and it's a a terrifying awareness of of Mm -hmm. alienation and and, and sort of... um, a breakdown in the possibility yeah. of communication. Mm-hmm. You're 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 aware of a wrongness yeah. in yourself, um, and and this is a, a, a small way of getting at this, and probably not the most important way the poem does it. But the poem is is so kind of um, imaginative in its use of adjectives, uh, and you know I, I think that there, there's something about that of like being able to put two things together. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and and to do it in unlikely ways, which to me becomes kind of a, a representation of the challenge of making meaning out of that state. Uh, and at first, those those extraordinary adjectives tend to be broken off from their nouns. The line breaks break mm-hmm. them off so that uh, so that we land really mm-hmm. hard on them. And then by the end, um, we we get that generous storm, another yeah, surprising combination. Yeah. But that it, but that it comes together, right? Yeah. Well, and that the that the that it passed through her like a swift and generous storm. The mercy of it to then leave mm-hmm. to have left, you yeah. know, the mercy of <laughs> the mercy of the storm to have left her with yeah. her wet hair and her goat head to kiss. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah. So so do we need to? I th- we probably need to to, to leave it. <laughs> So and and uh, we we need to move on now to uh, to recommendations. Mm-hmm. So um, uh, Kava, you're 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 sitting to my left. So I'll I'll assume that's significant <laughs> to get us started. Sure, I'll I'd love to get us started. Um, so I, I was thinking about what to talk about, and you know I I've been loving this Solman Sharif book, but uh, I didn't want to 
um, talk about that. And I've been loving a lot of books, um, but one that I've one that I've been unable to put down for you know the past week since I've had it is um, uh, uh, Derek Austin's um, new book with BOA editions, mm-hmm. uh, Trouble the Water. It's a really really incredible book um, by this young poet. He won the BOA prize. Um, selected by Mary Shibis and the whole book is this incredible it's it's the it takes the vernacular of gospel the language of gospel um but uh incorp- it, it it sort of layers it over his you know sort of singular queer experience um it layers it over that it engages a lot of contemporary art and uh historical art um and it's just it's just incredible it it um, it creates psalms. It uh, works in sestinas. Um, I've just been unable to stop thinking about it since reading it, and I've been reading it and rereading it. And it makes a lot of sense to me too that Mary Shibist would have been the one to pick it, and that she would have found it so valuable because it really does sort of use the language of gospel that's been you, you know being repurposed and repurposed for millennia, um, and does something new with it, which is so hard. I, I think of that as you know being a little bit radioactive where if done poorly it'll just sort of like decimate the landscape all around it but um if done well you know it can it contains a lot of power it's it, it's it's really really powerful and i think that this book is an instance is an instant of it being used particularly um extraordinarily and in a way that i can't stop thinking about so that would be my recommendation um it's called trouble the water and i think it's just mm-hmm. out with boa edition yeah. fantastic and we'll put links to, yeah. to that and to everything else on the website as well Mm-hmm. Francine, you're you're in front oh, of me. Oh yeah. So. Okay. Um, so the so the book that I want to recommend it's not necessarily a new book. I've been reading um, uh, Rigoberto Gonzalez's Unpeopled Eden, um, and I think what I'm really enjoying about it is that uh, the one of the things that kind of draws me to it is that it sort of um, uses the the backdrop of this Aztec mythology to like move through these landscapes of uh, Mexico and California and sort of other like Central American landscapes um, to and it's it's uh, really kind of peopled like there's a lot of figures that kind of um, deal with talking about the, the atrocities happening in, the, mm-hmm. in these landscapes um, technically I think what I'm really interested in it and right now is how many how sectioned it is mm-hmm. um i've been kind of really like thinking a, lo- a lot about long long poems um and there's a lot of uh um longer poems in here that are connected through through sections um uh and so this is this is actually a little bit older this came out in uh, 2013 i think um, is that with four-way <clears throat> yes yeah um yeah, and there's just there's a way in which uh, things sort of happen through the lyric that are dark and startling. Um, there's a queerness in it that's not central stage to the to everything else that that takes more priority. Um, and I, you know, I'm I'm still like moving through it, so it's not like a a, a summation. I'm just like really fascinated by it. Mm-hmm. And I, I, one of the things I really loved about that book is is the way it works towards but not really in a collective language. Mm-hmm. There, there, there's something very interesting about um, how it tries to find ways to speak for an entire group of people mm-hmm. and to create a language that can mean, meaningfully mm-hmm. uh, speak about that, which I, I thought was really um, extraordinary. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
Gabby? <laughs> it's been it's been very hard for me. There's two books that I've really been thinking a ton about in in the last week. Uh, so I would like to say one of them is a book I'll want to talk about next month, which is Robin Schiff's Remarkable, A Woman mm-hmm. of Property. I think it's going to mm-hmm. be one of the great uh, third books, but just it's, it's a book that will introduce her to a whole new audience mm-hmm. of people. Um, but, but the book I've been thinking about so much over the last couple months and um, certainly in some ways in light of the, the excitement around, which I share, the excitement around Solma's Sharif's book, Look, is Athena Farzad's White Light, mm-hmm. which, which I think is, it comes out from Argos Books. Um, for, for anyone who doesn't know, Athena Farzad is a, an Iranian, a poet of Iranian descent living in Sweden. Mm-hmm. She's a very important poet mm-hmm. in Sweden. Um, yeah. And she's also a, f- a hugely important feminist figure. Um, just, sh- she's really, really interesting. And, and this is a book that in many ways is an intimate family drama, right. but it's also about torture and mm-hmm. it's a it's about um, governmental powers and migration and, mm-hmm. and racism and xenophobia and uh, I will say that I have rarely had an experience like the one I've had reading that book I just recommend everyone get it and I think that it's wonderful to get it and and read it independently of Solmaz Sharif's book to read it alongside Solmaz Sharif's book um, <laughs> but I also think yeah yeah, I, I'm, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but yeah, that's been, I, this has been, this book has been the sort of obsession of all of yeah. this podcast yeah. uh, in mm-hmm. leading up to uh, this recording, but we're, we're all kind of obsessed with it. And I've been thinking a lot about the yeah. intersections of this book with Soma Sharif's yeah. look. Um, I think they're very much in communication with each other. And when uh, Soma Sharif's book comes out and, uh, and you know, hopefully it will get all the attention it deserves. Um, mm-hmm. I, and, and I hope that, uh, you know, everyone acknowledges how, and I think that they will acknowledge what an incredible work it is. I hope that they too will then turn to Farrakh Saad's book because yeah. I think that they're in communication in a really interesting way. And I think that uh, that Farrakh Saad book is a really, really kind of singular book too. Yeah. Um, I haven't read a lot of things like it. It's almost like a play. It has yeah. been produced as a yeah. play. And it works mm-hmm. with this idea of redaction in interesting ways. And it's mm-hmm. just, um, yeah, I, I, I hope that both of those books are in, it would be wonderful if both of those books were the books that people were talking about mm-hmm. in and the next year. And to your point about considering them, considering uh, White Blight by itself and in conjunction with the, the Sharif, conveniently enough, uh, Kava has written about it in conjunction mm-hmm. with the Sharif, and that's mm-hmm. coming out in yeah. Kenyan Review, mm-hmm. and, and I've written about it in its own right, and that, that should come out uh, next month in Slate. So so, um, mm-hmm. so we, we do have those bases covered. Yeah, 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 yeah. just unanimous, thrilling endorsement. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, so that leaves me. Um, <laughs> I, uh, I want to recommend a book that I probably won't get to write about uh, because it's written by a former professor of mine. Uh, James McMichael recently published, I, I believe, his seventh book of poetry, if you can tell. Like most of Jim's books, it's a single work in several parts, and like many of his books, it's not particularly welcoming. You have to be willing to listen to it for a while to learn how it works. Uh, I'm on my second read right now, and I, and I feel like I'm still getting my bearings, and honestly... Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not sure how much of my response to it is personal. I'm hearing someone who was so important to me mm-hmm. for an important while looking at his own death with, uh, with real severity. Um, there's always been a sense in Jim's poetry that any sentiment or value uh, that can live in such a severe and demanding environment has exceptional value. 
uh, a lot like a compliment from Jim used to feel, actually. Mm. Uh, even though the, the intense sort of intellection of his work also seems to be a way of managing his potential for sentimentality. Um, there's a relatively short poem from the book uh, that's available online. I'll post a link to that on the website. Um, but for now, I want to read just a little bit of a, a poem from earlier in the book, a moment that's presumably addressed to his wife uh, and that's subject uh, to the faith of his childhood, um, which um, it, it has this kind of uh, both sort of trivializing and sort of still overawed relationship to uh, and, and that he's sort of kind of scrutinizing throughout this book. So this is the end of a poem that is called uh, something or another. It's called Silence. Uh, so this is the end of it. He says, uh, Letting go of silences, it's safer to keep. I have to take on faith how I'll be heard. One thing I say in trust comes back as vitriol from you and empties me out. Nothing's mine right then to draw from. Your wrath's the only room there is and I can't move. After a wordless hour or so absolved in our relief, if it's me I'm returned to, I'm yours and those forgotten blessings again that I'd been urged to count and find the right names for each night. Uh, and that sort of staggered rhythm is, is something that kind of uh, mm -hmm. works throughout the book and works throughout a, a lot of Jim's work and mm -hmm. that, that I find uh, sort of um, in, in instructive and, and sometimes frightening Sorry, Jonathan, and compelling. What, what was the, what book is that again? It's called If You Can Tell by James McMichael. Oh, okay. It's a, it's a really interesting and strong book, and I think he's one of those poets who has many, many books and does not have a huge readership. No. Uh, particularly, I would think of people of a certain sort of younger generation, maybe even my generation, 40 and below. Um, so I, I think this will be an interesting book out in the world. Yeah, yeah, I, I strongly that's with agree. FSG. That's with FSG, yeah. Mm -hmm. So we're going to turn it over to Francine for her interview. That's it for Kava, Gabby, and me. Bye, Francine. Bye. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> um, so to close out our first episode of After You, I bring you Aziza Barnes, who's calling Hello. in from Oxford, Mississippi. Hi, Aziza. <laughs> hey. <laughs> and um, she'll be talking to us about her new podcast uh, with John Sands and Jose Olivares um, called The Poetry Gods. Um, so yeah, tell us a little bit about the aim of the podcast, Aziza. Word. So, um, well, I guess to talk about the aim, I could talk about how we started doing it. Mm -hmm. And um, me, John, and Jose had a gig for a weekend about um, uh, the sound, seeing sounds festival. I'm forgetting exactly the title of the festival. They're gonna kill me. Um, <laughs> but it was up in Massachusetts, and the Berkshire is like beautiful. And um, we were, like, driving up and listening to The Champs, which is, like, this comedian podcast. Mm -hmm. um, and we were listening to oh, yeah. their episodes with, like, Larry Wilmore and Charlie Murphy. <laughs> nice. And we were just laughing our asses <laughs> off. <laughs> because Charlie Murphy is laughable for weird reasons. <laughs> Dude, he was just telling these stories about when he was in the Navy and when... You know, like, Ed would bring women to the house if he, like, really wasn't feeling them once they got there. They'd, like, have this system where, you know, she had to get in the limo and, like, would never see him again. Like, it was very <laughs> absurd. Oh, my God. Stories. Yeah, that only Charlie Murphy could have. Right. 
And then, of course, like, absurd stories about himself where he was like, yeah, I remember one time I was drunk as hell, came in this house with an AK-47, and I was like, hey, Ed. And he was like, oh, God. <laughs> you know, like, being Charlie Murphy and crazy. But what we liked about it was it wasn't so much about, like, so what's your craft as a comedian? Like, mm. you know, in the way that a lot of poetry podcasts can be, and, mm-hmm. and the ones that we had been hearing had been, mm-hmm. you know, it's very much like craft, and are you interested in praxis, or are you interested in, you know, parataxis versus hypotaxis, like, <laughs> very clinical right. language, right? which isn't really the language that when we would be, you know, at the bar after a reading, it's not the language that we would use when we were so passionately geeked about it. We'd right. be like, right. nah, that line was flames, oh my god, this shit is lit. Like, we would just be you know, loud and dorky and, you know, exuberant and funny. Right. And um, we were like, why isn't that in the podcast? Mm. So we had two days of performing, um, like, the whole day through for this festival. Yeah. And then um, at the end of it, we were just, like, drinking and, like, kikiing and everything. And we decided to, like, flip on an audio recording. And we start, like, recording a fake podcast. We're like, let's just try it, whatever. <laughs> Nice. And it was so fun. It was just so, so fun. And, and like, on the drive back home, we played it back in the car. And we were like, yo, there's something here. Yeah. Uh, and we want to make this something. We want, we want it to be a podcast where it's about the poets as people. Yeah. And, like, all the strange stories they have, because they have so many. Definitely. And, um, you know, so that was in June. And then over, like, the following month, we just kept talking about it and talking about it and, like, you know, hanging out. Whenever we would hang out, we would talk about it. And I moved down to Mississippi. <laughs> but um, we were like, now nah, we still got to do this thing. So I came back in January. And for the whole month of January, we just, like, recorded, like, bum rush recorded and recorded, like, seven, eight sessions. That's amazing. Oh, so you season. have a bunch now. Yeah, that's great. yeah, but we're releasing them, like, one every two weeks. Okay, yeah, that's what I was going to ask. So there's a bi-weekly, and the first one aired on the first-ish? The yes. First, right around the first month. I think month. that's, yeah. Awesome. <laughs> and how can people first. get it? Oh, well, it is available on iTunes and SoundCloud. If okay. you type in the Poetry Gods, it should be the first thing that pops up. Okay, cool. Um, and please subscribe. You okay, know, that's I found cool. it on SoundCloud. Yeah, yeah, we got it up there. Okay, awesome. Um, totally. I think I, I know I've followed it on SoundCloud, so I'll subscribe on iTunes. It's so good. So excited what? for you guys. Thank you. And you have a book coming. I do. On Yes, I Yes, do. right? Yeah, Yes, Yes. Is I it... love making that joke. It's such a silly joke. <laughs> like... <laughs> Wait, which it's joke? It's so dumb. Just like, it's coming from Yes, Yes, right? <laughs> yes, Yes. <laughs> Yes. Oh, yes and yes. Like, but I do it every time. <laughs> um, and it's called I Be... All right, wait, I, what is it? What's the title? I Be But I Ain't. I Be yeah. But I Ain't. Yeah, it's so good. Yeah. Okay, so yeah, I have yeah. a, I have this weird thing to tell you. Oh, wait, when does that come out? Oh, that comes out on March 15th. Is the, oh, this is the month. Day, and pre-order is coming up soon. Yeah, I saw that. That's great. Congratulations. Yeah. I'm so excited. Thank you so much, man. That means a lot. <laughs> so I have a side note for you. Um, so we, yeah. I don't know if you guys did this, but we did a test episode. Um, you did what? We did a test episode. 
So um, our, right. our format is that we pick a couple poems to talk about um, every month, and then we do recommendations in this interview. Um, and Away. yeah, and so one of our our poems for the test episode, we did Matt Oldsman, a poem of Oldsman's, and then we did um, your poem. Uh, my dad asks, why can't black folks talk what? about <laughs> flowers? So it's it's Are yeah, seriously. So it's like it's it's there somewhere. We're gonna do. We're gonna wow. have like at some point we'll like let it go. But apparently the sound is all crazy and whatever. It was a total test thing. Right. Um, but yeah. then, but then, like after that, it was like, oh, you guys are doing this podcast, and then we were like, well, we have to talk to you. <laughs> and so, yeah. so here's my wild card question for you. Um, and I was actually really thinking about this because it got me thinking. We were like, oh, we should ask her how we sh- what she thinks about fate, right? Because that's kind of like this coincidental thing. But then I was thinking, you know, for folks who are like somewhat activist-minded, conscious folks, it just made me wonder what you think about that. Do you believe in fate? In, in fate? Yeah. Oh, like a, I'm sorry, I hope I'm hearing it right, like a predestined kind of order? Something like that. I mean, yeah, or yeah. like however you define it, I guess. Yeah. I don't know. I, I don't think I do, I, because fate feels very much like I had no control. <clears throat> Yeah. Um, and I think you do. Like, I think you have um, a responsibility to, like, put your effort into creating, like, the life that you have. Totally. Right? So fate for me is hard, but I have a deep and abiding ish- interest in ancestral memory mm. and in faith. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that there are things that you innately feel and you kind of know they're coming. Um, And you have to believe in that, I think, like in your gut, I think is really important. And um, I think you just have to listen to things that are not uh, shit that they could tell you, you know, in school or at church even. But I think like a deep faith in where you've come from, which is why I think like uh, in terms of like the diaspora that black Americans have had to endure is so cool because a large part of it is trying to sever us from any knowledge of where we've come from. Yeah. It's very hard to have faith, I think, if you don't know that information. Right. Um, but if you scavenge and, like, really pursue your faith in what's come before you, I, I believe in that. I yeah. definitely believe in that. Yeah. That's awesome. That's such a good thought. Thank Thanks. you so much. Thanks, man. Thank you so much for talking to us. Oh, will you um, say goodbye to our listeners? <laughs> Okay, bye everybody. Bye everyone.